Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Carl Nellis, and I'm delighted to host this episode as a special collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History and to welcome Lillian Barger, our own Lillian Barger from the New Books Network. Many of you may have heard her interviews on the Intellectual History channel before or on gender studies or American studies channels. I am so glad to to have her on the show today to talk about her own book, World Come of Age, an Intellectual History of Liberation Theology, just out from Oxford University Press. Lillian, uh, I don't feel like I have to welcome you. You must feel uh, right at home, but welcome to this episode of New Books in Intellectual History. Thank you, Carl. It's it's a little odd, but I think it'll be great to be on the other side of the mic. Yeah, yeah. I really, I, I want to start the way that we always start because you have asked this question to so many people, but now is our chance to hear a little bit more about Lillian Barger. Can you tell us about uh, what brought you professionally and personally to the point where you have written an intellectual history of liberation theology published by Oxford. Well, part of part of the story, you know, I I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and I've traveled extensively through Latin America, so I'm very familiar with Latin America. I also, back in the 90s, uh, I was very involved in exploring uh, feminist uh, theology, women's history. And when I began to read uh, feminist theology and women's history, I noted that they were talking a lot. They would mention black theology. They would mention Latin American theology. And so I was like wondering, what is the connection here? I ended up going to graduate school in midlife after I had had a career in business and because I'd always been interested in ideas. And I got my, in my dissertation, I wrote about liberation theology. And in that dissertation, which now became the book, is I'm try, I've tried to connect these things that really came out of my own life, my Latin American background, my experience with feminist meetings and gatherings and, and, and literature, really reading and understanding uh, where women were. And the African-American piece is something that I had to learn uh, about because I had not had a lot of exposure, but I, I was able to pick that up. And I began to see the, the congruency of these three theologies that are often thought of as independent from each other, mm-hmm. but they actually have a, a common core. So it comes out of, this book comes out of my own life experience and my own intellectual interest. And also the fact that I've been a, a person of faith all of my life and come from that kind of background, but there was always things that bothered me, things that didn't seem to, to mesh well, uh, especially when you get into first with the issues of women and um, feminism and how that's related to religion. And so uh, that's kind of where my book came from. And that's what you got. Mm-hmm. And this isn't your first book you've published before. You're, you're already an accomplished writer. Uh, I know sometimes when we're talking about a dissertation becoming a book, it's an author's first book, but you've written before uh, in some related ways. Yes, I had I wrote two books uh, before graduate school uh, on women, religion, and culture, mm-hmm. and where I was trying to unpack, you know, feminist theology and women's spirituality and history, and try to kind of illuminate for myself, basically for my audience, 
you know, how are we going to relate as women to uh, our spiritual lives as women? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what does it mean in the context of a tradition? Well, let's jump into the introduction of the book, because one of the ways that you position it for the reader when they open it up and they're wondering what they're going to get is at the beginning, you say, this isn't so much a book about people or institutions, but it's about ideas and sensibilities. Can you talk about writing a history, an intellectual history of ideas and sensibilities, and how that connects these parallel movements of uh, liberation theologies across these different fields? Well, most most of the time, most histories are written from the perspective of an institution, the, the, you know, who did what, the mm-hmm. events that happened, uh, particular individuals. And there's lots of individuals and there's lots of events in my book. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I'm looking a little bit above that. I'm looking and saying, what are the ideas and the sensibilities that are connecting, let's say, a James Cone with a Rosemary Radford Ruther or a James Cone and Gutierrez? And what is their uh, sensibility that they're bringing to theology that has something in common? If you just look at their upbringing and their con- their, their immediate context, you're going to go, well, they really didn't have anything in common you know, at that level. But when you start looking at the ideas that they were articulating in their particular uh, situation, those ideas are very much connected. And I I tend to, I'm an intellectual historian because I'm very interested in ideas because I believe that ideas shape people's uh, actions and lives, that we live at ideas every day. And I'm, I'm very passionate about the uh, work uh, of, of intellectual historians and what they bring to the table of history, because it's more than just people, this person did that and that person did that. It's why they did it. What was motivating? What is the ideology behind it? Where did they get this idea? How did they think about it? Why did they think about it this way? And how did they change ideas? And ideas are always enough, but nothing's new. And one of the things about liberation theology is that a lot of people think it began, you know, in 1969 or 1970 with these particular <laughs> yeah, books. Yeah. And I was trying to show, no, it, it's, it has a long history. There were people back in the 19th century who were already articulating some of these sensibilities, things like these ideas about the relationship between politics and religion. And so I wanted to show that really almost like there's nothing new under the sun. What what the liberationists in the 1960s did was put all those ideas in their immediate context. They connected it to their immediate context and did something a little different with it. They developed it further. But those ideas were perennial. I really love how... Uh, in chapter one, you start with some figures we might not always think of as theologians, but who provide that crucial context and, and, and even a bridge from the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. When you talk about Langston Hughes and Richard Wright and then Baldwin, and we might not always think of them as theologians, but even in your opening move of the book, you start drawing those connections that show the way that ideas pass across our, you know, the lines of categories that we draw. Well, yes. I mean, one of the things I'm doing in the book is trying to break down this wall between what we think is a secular thought and what is theological thought. And I think that those are are actually all kind of combined together. Um, So uh, it's very difficult to try to, if you try to do that, you really miss, if you look at a secular thinker and think, this is all secular ideas, but you can't pick up the religious sensibilities that are there. And they, 
you know, the people you're talking about, uh, African-American intellectuals, particularly in the 20th century, who are considered secular thinkers, like Lexington Hughes and people like that. These guys um, came from African-American communities that are completely like enwrapped with religious ideas. They they picked up on religious ideas, motifs and words, and it's in their writing. They can't escape it because that's where they came from. And so I'm was very I'm very sensitive to religious language imagery and uh, things like that in what we would consider secular thought, um, because people have everyone has a, a vision of what they think is uh, the transcendent. Uh, it may not be a Christian God. It may not be a Jewish God. It, it, it may not even be a God, but this idea that there's something beyond our human situation, that there's something greater and bigger that they're trying to tap and talk to. When they talk about justice, they, they're talking about a concept that's bigger than just the immediate situation. And so that's one of the things that I really try to do in the book is show that religion and politics cannot be disentangled. Secular and religious thought are very much entangled together because we're, it's all in the same world and it's all melding together. And uh, it's very hard to escape. And I think you do a great job starting with, with these black writers in demonstrating one of the major themes that you address when you're talking about liberation theology in that it was a kind of a break from the uh, top down or, or kind of an academy out view of theology and that liberation theologians looked not to the <laughs> you might say the theological establishment or elite but they were thinking and rethinking the relationship of politics and theology from the ground up from the people up rather than from the academy out um, so i loved that move that you made with those writers who we might not think of as theologians, starting your book with them follows the moves of the liberation theologians who were saying, we don't write theology just by looking at theology. We start on the ground. That chapter then opens up to those who we might consider main figures of liberation theology, James Cone and Gustavo Gutierrez and Mary Daly and Rosemary Ruther. Can you give us the way that you introduce them at the beginning of the book? And then we'll, we'll dive into chapter two and, and the rest. Well, you know, basically these these thinkers uh, in their situation, you've got first you have the the, the black black power was a uh, a big political movement at the end of the 1960s, and James Cone was a theologian. He was trained as a theologian. Uh, he uh, had done his dissertation on Karl Barth, so he was a theologian of theologians, and he. Uh, began to feel very uncomfortable when he went out and started teaching that the theology that had been he had learned in seminary did not address the racial problem that black power was articulating um, in the streets. And he became very uncomfortable with the fact that he had nothing to say to the race problem in America. So he began to think about theology or God in the context of a movement like Black Power that, for the most part, had really given up on the Black church and said the Black church is, you know, full of Uncle Toms who are just doing white people's, you know, bidding. So there you've got a theology that's coming out of what is considered a secular movement. Then with the uh, Latin America you had a Cuban revolution in 1959. That revolution spread throughout Latin America. It was a revolution that basically said, we're tired of being under the foot of the United States. 
And it was an anti-Yankee, anti-American sort of thing. And again, the liberationist theologians, before they were liberationists, were theologians. They were trained, most of the ones I'm talking about, uh, professional theologians were trained in either in the United States, in seminaries in the United States, or they were trained in Europe. And they were trained not only in theology, but philosophy, cultural analysis, all kinds of things. And so they began to see that there was their theology that they had brought in from the United States and Europe could not respond to what was going on on the ground with people in terms of among the poor and among revolutionaries who who were suffering, either women, people were suffering under poverty, extreme poverty, and revolutionaries were saying the United States and the West is the reason why we are in this and we need to deliver ourselves from their power. We need liberation from their power. We need economic liberation. And so the uh, Latin American uh, theologians who became liberationists were trying to respond to that. And they, re- they basically said, the theology that we have learned uh, in these institutions, uh, major institutions, is top down. It's all from the perspective of elite white men. And w- we need to listen to the people on the ground. And that's exactly what they did. They began to listen to the people on the ground, the people in the shanty towns, the people in labor uh, organizing, the people, the revolutionaries. They began to listen to them and ask them to tell them who God was. And basically what they, what they heard was, God is for us. And that's where they built their theology. They built their theology by listening to uh, what the poor and the oppressed in Latin America were saying and that they needed liberation. Mm-hmm. So that's that piece. With women, uh, the, the, the feminist theologians that emerged in the early 1970s, these women, for the most part, were women who came out of the feminist movement, the radical feminist movement. They were the ones who had gone to uh, consciousness-raising groups. They were the ones who had... Uh, you know, been involved in civil rights activism, peace movements, all kinds of social movements. And they, when when feminists realized that a lot of these movements were sexist, they and they began to examine their yeah. environment, they realized, oh, it's not just those movements. The churches we've come from are sexist. So they began to think about how do we think about God in a way that empowers women, in a way that frees women. And there's where feminist theology emerged. Uh, so that's that's introduction, sort of who these people were. They came out of social movements. They they were responding to real stuff on the ground, but they were professional theologians. And they said, "There's theology that's coming from Black people's experience, from Latin American people's experience, from women's experience that has not been recognized. It has not been acknowledged. And we're going to take that and we're going to legitimize it. And we're going to say this is." These are legitimate views of God. It's not just what white elite men and institutions are telling people who God is. People experience God every day, and they think about God every day, and we need to tap and know what that is. I think it's very powerful. You also address uh, in this chapter the significance of Vatican II. Can you give us a little bit of how Vatican II fits into this picture, this kind of turn? Well, Vatican II uh, was a modernizing... um, turn in Catholicism. In other words, the, the Vatican uh, decided to be much more open to the world, to uh, be more responsive to what was going on in the world, because before then it was very closed off. 
And that gave, that opened the way for Latin American theologians to say, okay, uh, the Vatican wants to be more responsive to the world. Well, our world is poverty stricken. Our world is full of revolutionaries. How, how do we become responsive to them? When Vatican II did that, uh, that, that move of we want to modernize and we want to be more responsive, they were really kind of thinking about liberal modernity. They weren't thinking about revolutionaries. Okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so oftentimes, uh, a lot of the times when when the Vatican speaks, uh, their language is not so precise, and so that allows a lot of multiple interpretations of their decisions. It continues always happened with the, with the church. The, they uh, you know different people will interpret what the Vatican says in different ways, and then they have a problem on their hands, which is exactly what happened because they had to go. Well, that's not what we meant. We didn't mean for you to go and join the revolutionaries. You know, we, we they were thinking more of a, it was more of a liberalizing uh, document, Vatican II, than it was a revolutionary document. And you addressed the response of the bishops. Can you give us what, what happened, uh, the kind of the counter response? Well, you know, uh, early on, the liberationists uh, uh, were beginning to really say, we're wanting to recover what the Vatican says we need to recover, which is a concern for the poor. And they were trying to recover uh, some things that had been lost, but they also were adding their own twist to it. And one of the things that happened was in the Latin America in the 1960s and 70s, there was a really terrible shortage of priests. I mean, terrible shortage of priests. So the church decided, the, the official church decided that it was going to allow these uh, lay communities, uh, sort of parachurch organizations that could be, uh, so that people could have, you know, lay leaders to keep people within the Catholic fold, even though there wasn't a priest around. The reason they had to do that was because evangelicalism and Protestantism was making inroads into Latin America in a big way. And they were, you know, and, and the way Protestants move in Latin America was through these sort of lay house churches sort of situation, very informally. Mm-hmm. So they, the church authorized these communities, uh, ecclesiastical communities, which were lay led communities and in shanty towns and all kind in urban settings and all kinds of places because there was there weren't enough priests to, to deal with it. The, the liberationists, uh, many of them were priests. Uh, they weren't just theologians, but they were priests. And they began to, uh, to pay attention to what was going on in these lay communities, religious communities. And that's where a lot of theology came from, because they began to go to those lay communities and talk to them about, you know, what do you think? What's going on? How do you how do you read the Bible, and uh, how do you listen? How do you hear the Bible? And so a lot of the theology came out of those lay uh, communities, which of course later on, the, the the bishops of the most of the bishops, not all of them, many of the bishops in the Latin American Church, uh, decided that those lay communities were basically you know, incubators for revolutionaries, that they were dangerous, that they were incubators for all kinds of movements that were anti against the church. So there was a, a big ca- crackdown, not only on the on the lay communities, but there were crackdowns on on dissident priests and who were working with those communities. And um, as you can see, 
you know, you can start with something, intent something like a lay community sounds great, but then you can't control them. So that, you know, by the 1980s, late 1970s, early 80s, the, the, the church, many of the bishops were really cracking down on dissidents uh, within the church. Well, and <laughs> your chapter uh, titled The Irony of America handles that difference between what you intend or what the stated goal is and what the reality on the ground is. I want to um, want to quote you here because I think you put it so beautifully. You say that the history of revolutionary Americas exhibits a paradox of enormous expectations of freedom on the one hand and an unfathomable level of human misery on the other. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you discuss the history um, and what you call the irony of America there as you're stepping back from the theology and looking at the political situation and the way that you would, you engage with that. Right. Well, uh, first, you know, there wouldn't be, I don't think there would be a liberation theology without the, the, the history of the Americas. Mm-hmm. The Americas are, are different from the rest of the world and have a, a kind of a unique history. Um, these, the countries of the Americas, which were formed, you know, 1776, the United States, and then in the 19, 1820, 1830 sort of time period, the states of, of Latin America were, took shape. These states, both America, North American states and Latin American states, were established by liberal elites. These were men of the Enlightenment who believed in freedom and, um, you know, uh, all the things that we think of associated with the Enlightenment and republics and uh, equality and all that. However, uh, in Latin America, these these country these countries and these these governments, uh, liberal governments, for the most part, at the beginning, also were lim- wanted to limit, as it's just like the United States, who would be included in that. Okay, and African Americans weren't included in the United States. In Latin America, the many of the indigenous were not included. You know, you had to be white of Spanish, you know, origin to really have full citizenship rights. There was, you know, uh, so there was this rhetoric of freedom all throughout the Americas, but being, you know, proposed by the the elite thinkers, the political thinkers. But the reality was that on the ground, the vast majority of people uh, in Latin America were really excluded. Not only were they excluded from the liberal project of the new nations, but they also, a lot of their communities were being destroyed because their communities were based on different principles or based on communalism. And it wasn't so much based on the individual. Okay. And which, which, was against the liberal project of the individual. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that and that tension between um, the freedom that is articulated in the, the rhetoric of you know that we, we respect the individual and we need individual freedom and self determination was denied the vast majority of the people in the Americas. The vast majority of them, uh, indigenous black people, uh, slaves. A, a lot of lower class people, labor people, women were excluded from the full range of what it meant to be a free individual and equal. That we're still fighting that. Okay, we're yeah. still in that, uh, and that's the irony. How can we talk so much about freedom all you know for centuries, and have so many people who never really get the full opportunity to do that to be free? And then you you start the next chapter addressing 
what is that meaning of freedom? And you say it's not Lockean liberty, uh, nor is it Kant's moral freedom. But the the liberation theologians were articulating a different definition. Yeah, their their definition of freedom borrowed from from Kant, borrowed from uh, all, all kinds of thinkers. But they they said it was more than just moral freedom. It was more than just uh, you know, be, it, be, having, you know, moral freedom, which is how we think of it. It was more than just liberty of an individual. Freedom had, uh, which had to be a very holistic thing. It had to be first. It had to be situated. Freedom was situated within a community. Okay, one person can't be free by themselves. They're free with a community of people, and that freedom is holistic. It is not just, it's not just economic or political, it's psychological, it's existential, it's in every way uh, a very, and and liberation was the process by which we seek to become free. And, and that's the, that freedom was a freedom that was denied many people. They were denied a, a certain kinds of economic freedom, even though you could say, well, a slave has moral freedom. They had no economic freedom. They had no freedom of movement. They had no, you know, they had no freedom to determine their own lives. So they went further than just moral freedom or the liberty to be, you know, to uh, be an economic uh, individual. But one of the things that they, they did that was very interesting was they wanted to recover the idea that freedom is always in relation, in community with others. And this is where you bring in uh, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And can you talk about how some of his central ideas become important uh, and become imported into other communities who are trying to define liberation in that way? The, the whole idea is, of course, that part of freeing people uh, of freedom is you have to free people's minds. And you can't make a, a person free just by saying, okay, you know, you're like, for instance, when the, the slaves were freed, politically freed in America, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually free because first they have to have economic freedom. They have to have the ability to move around. They have to be allowed to participate so you can be technically politically free and be totally unfree. And part of that is is awakening the consciousness. People have to be awakened to the conditions that they're living in. People it's almost like you have to people have to be educated that hey, you know what? You're not free. Look. Look at all the ways you're not free. And that's what pedagogy of the oppressed was about was about raising consciousness. That consciousness raising activity of education, which is helping people understand their situation, their political situation, that they're not as free as they think they are or why they're having the problems that they're having. Because most, most in America, most of us think if you have a problem, it's your own personal problem. You know, you didn't work hard enough. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't pull yourself up from your good strings. You know, you, you're not, you're not, you're the problem why you have a problem. And what the liberations were saying to people is no, your problem is because there are all these barriers that you don't even see. And part of consciousness raising is help, helping people see what is not seen. And the feminists did it in the consciousness raising groups. Women would go into these groups and they would talk about their lives and they would begin to name the many ways that they were being limited that they had not seen before. And people would have these kind of big, you know, kind of conversion moments like, oh, my God, oh, this is what's been happening to me. I didn't even see it. Same thing with African-Americans in 
in Black power. They were trying to raise the consciousness of Black people to make them realize, you know what? Things are not the way they are because that's just the way it is. They're the way they are by design. Someone has designed the system that you are trapped in. Instead of thinking that, oh, well, it's just the way it is. You know, Black people are always occupying this lower. It's God-given. God mandated it. They said, no, this is not a God thing. This is this is a system that's keeping you in that in that situation. So um, consciousness raising was used across the hemisphere by many, many groups, revolutionary groups. Feminists used it. Black power people used it. Latin American revolutionary used it. It was... It, and, you know, we still think about that. The people are just not aware of what's being done to them. Why do people vote against their own interests? Okay, that's that's sort of the question. So that's where that fits in. And that opens up for you uh, what you do in the next chapter with theology and social science, which is such a fascinating piece of intellectual history where you're talking about what might seem like pretty disparate fields. But through the whole book, you're addressing the separation in modernism between the sacred and the secular. And this is a point where we see that in two academic fields of theology and of social science. Can you talk about um, where they're distinct and kind of the history that brings them to the meeting place of liberation theology? How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Well, your book is just so rich. Every chapter is just packed with um, these really detailed and interesting... Let me go back a little bit to the roots of this. What I was trying to do is show that sociology really came out of a, a situation where, you know, the Enlightenment was was discrediting religious knowledge. Mm-hmm. And once you discredit religious knowledge and you sort of discredit or sideline uh, some religious in- institutions, then you have a problem of how do we organize society? Because Religion had been a huge, of course, we know of most of the history of Western history, religion has been a great big organizing principle for good and for bad, okay, in terms of uh, setting up expectations of how we're to live with each other, you know, establishing status, establishing, you know, communities. Religion has just been so entangled in that. Once you begin to question the whole religious project and you want to free people, uh, from religion and its institutions and the authority of priests and the authority of pe- preachers and the authority of these sacred texts so that you can establish the the individual as a self-determining free person, you have a problem. And the problem that came out of that was how do we keep society going together? If everybody's you know determining their own freedom and everybody's doing what they want to do and nobody's there's no authority, we reject a religious authority as a something to, to hold us together, how do we um, organize society? And that's where the social sciences began. It's the science of society, the science of how we organize ourselves, how do we determine how we're going to live as individuals and connect to each other. And so I, I try to make in that, in that chapter connection between how social science tries to think about society and how theology uh, and some of the principles that theology had been thinking about and how how sociology tried to take, social science was taking some of those same principles, uh, principles of status, principles of authority, um, and, uh, you know, we're embeddedness in communities, taking the same principles that the theologians had set up, secularize them in some way, take out the religious aspects of it. 
And then you have another problem with the social science because it was based on model after the natural sciences and other empirical evidence. You know, we need to be able to show, uh, you know, why people act the way they act, why communities form the way they form. And they wanted to do it in an empirical sort of scientific way. Well, the problem they ran into is, okay, how do we account for value formation? How do people form their values? And it, it was very difficult for them, based on facts of behavior, to formulate why people had certain values. They couldn't connect those two things. Mm-hmm. The theologians said, oh, it's because they get their values from transcendence and from religion, and you're just trying to look at facts. And the and the social scientists are saying, you can't, you can't show us, you know, empirically where values come from. So there was always this tension between theology and social science. And as the 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century developed, theology changed, social science changed, those two disciplines became getting closer and closer together, meaning that theology began to recognize um, that social science had something to say about the state of humanity and how we organize our, our world. Mm-hmm. And sociology or the social science and social theory began to kind of say, okay, there's something else going on here besides what the facts can tell us about why people choose certain ways of life. Mm-hmm. The theolo- the, so throughout the 20th century, you have this movement of, of confluence where social science and social scientific theory and theology are moving certain streams of theology and we're talking mostly something that's coming out of the liberal strength of the liberal theology. They're coming closer together. So by the 1960s, um, there is enough confluence there that the liberationists begin to have a full, a full throttle sort of appeal to sociology to show uh, these are the facts about what's going on, okay? And this is why people are poor. Uh, they were using Marxist social theory. They were using um, uh, critical theory to analyze the situation that then they could apply their theology to. That is the short version of a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> True. And this is why folks need to go pick up the book because you've drawn those connections that aren't always made in smaller studies that don't see... The, the cross the kind of the hemispheric perspective that you're drawing for us well the um, only way the only way that happens uh, Carl is because I'm looking at ideas mm-hmm. and you can follow those ideas and they how they develop and change over the 19th century and the 20th century and you can see things you can't see any other way yeah and it leads to addressing some figures in relation that I and in ways that I think are really interesting uh, you talk about both weB Du Bois as a religious thinker, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman, you address her, his religion and hers. Could you say a little bit about what you do with those two writers uh, in, in the book? Well, you know, Du Bois is so often talked about in a very secular way. Um, you know, there's a lot made of the fact that he ended up a communist, that he critiqued uh, religion extensively, um, and so, you know, it's very easy just to say, well, he was just an atheistic, secular thinker. But if you if you read his work closely, and I'm not the only one that's done that, Edward, Edward Bloom, which I draw a lot of my work from in, in mm-hmm. regard to Du Bois, uh, 
really has has shown, I think, that Du Bois was not uh, critiquing uh, Christianity in particular uh, wholesale, that he was concerned about a particular flavor of Christianity, and that was the white Protestant elite religion. And he, 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 and he validated the religion of African-Americans and what true Christianity was about. So there's, he's very complicated and it's very difficult to just to put him in a uh, secular mold. Now he uh, definitely was, of course, interest, part of the freedom movement. He was very interested in, in full freedom for African-Americans in American society. And he understood that part of, of that had to be uh, how you relate to religion, that how African-Americans related to religion had a big influence and, and a big, it was a big part of the story. And part of them was to make, the, make them, part of it was making them realize that, the, that a lot of the religion that they had accepted was based on white was to the benefit of white people basically and it wasn't a rejection of christianity wholesale it was a rejection of a particular flavor of christianity and the same thing with uh uh charlotte perkins gilman again she's often talked about and discussed as a feminist uh secular uh person and if you look at her Mm -hmm. work she does critique uh, the the Christianity that had developed in her time, but she doesn't throw it all wholesale. She says we need to redefine it. We need to rethink it. We need to set different terms for for religion than the terms that we has been given to us. So these people, it's very hard to call these people just secular. Now you may not call them Christian, okay, and, and you're definitely not going to call them evangelicals, but they uh, were not. Uh, they did not reject uh, religion wholesale. They did believe that it was important in, ter- in terms of uh, freedom for communities. And I think that still holds true. I think that you cannot address many, many of the problems we have today without addressing the issue of what people believe about God, because it determines their political view and their social view. This is also where you address the indigenista movement, right? In, in in Latin America, you've got a situation that for since the 19, before the nineteenth century, and through the twentieth century, you would always were having these uh, periodic movements of of dissent, people who were protesting against the liberal states that many of them had become very oppressive liberal states, um, and they. Uh, in, mo- in most of these movements, again, uh, were movements who were critiquing the Catholic Church, the Catholic hierarchy, the way the Catholic Church was running the, the, those societies, but they were also always either appealing to religion, and usually they were appealing to the religion of the, uh, of the folk religion, the religion of the people, and uh, understanding that by appealing and, and incorporating that, the religion of the people, their political project had a much greater chance of success. So they could critique the hierarchy of the institutions and they could critique the political power, but they didn't necessarily just reject religion all outright. And that is, we need to be more nuanced, I think, and when we talk about what does the rejection of religion really entails, Oftentimes, it's a particular type, a particular expression of religion. And uh, in Latin America, revolutionary movements have, have 
have appealed to uh, different forms of religion all along. Because they're, it's a religious, these are religious people, the, the peasants, all these people, they're religious people. And you can't uh, really convince them politically if you don't appeal to them, to, the, to their imagination about who God is and what God wants. So this was also a point that I found really interesting. Can you talk about the way that aspects of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's thought appealed to certain thinkers and writers across Latin America? Oh, Bonhoeffer. Yes, he's a very controversial figure. <laughs> I think he's very controversial. <laughs> well, it's interesting about Bonhoeffer is that liberal theologians claim him and uh, and conservative theologians claim him. Everybody wants to claim Bonhoeffer. And uh, I think Bonhoeffer is a unique person who, in a very unique point in time. But the Latin Americans uh, began, really saw him first as a martyr. They saw him that he had st- stood up uh, to power and that's what that was the situation they were in, and he was a great inspiration. And also, he believed uh, Bonhoeffer talked about how religion, um, uh, and he was really kind of uh, over, and that what people needed was not a religion of the powerful, the institutions and and rituals and all that. What people needed was a God who a crucified God, a God who suffered with people, because people no longer needed a God who answered all the imponderables of life. People science, technology, humanistic inquiry was beginning to answer you know, all the mysteries of the world. So people didn't need God as like the God of the gaps, the God who would fill in the spot, the places where we didn't know the answer. So we just say, well, that's God. He said, we don't need that. What we need is a God who suffers with people because that's what the world, where the world is right now. And so they really, uh, the Latin Americans really uh, grabbed that. The idea that God was a God who suffered with people and was with them in suffering, that God wasn't just a God of hierarchy and in big institutions and power and elite and all that, but that he was in uh, the warp and wolf of, of God was in the warp and wolf of life, that he was in the mess of it. And this is a very different kind of uh, articulation of God. And, and it kind of brings out the whole uh, conf- conflict between eminence and transcendence that, you know, uh, theology has gone from, but in different periods of time and different groups, different theologians have emphasized either God's transcendence, that God is above, that God is beyond all comprehension, that God, you know, is uh, beyond our human uh, doing. And the other uh, group is have said, has said, no, God is with us. He's in the middle of, of the mess. He's in here suffering with us. And theology has gravitated from those two points. And Ultimately, the, the, the liberationists went with eminence. They basically said God's transcendence can only be found in the eminent. In other words, you're going to find the transcendent God in among the poor, in the suffering, in the ghetto, in, you know, in the shanty towns. That's where God's going to be. Which is, a, you know, uh, it's, they really went with that all the way through, uh, which means that God is in the politics. In the end, you know, if God's, uh, God's transcendent is in the imminent, then God is in the politic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that right there totally, you know, brings politic and religion together. They're occupying the same space. Mm-hmm. We've, we've talked some about 
uh, black theology and black liberation theology and James Cone and some of the precedents for his thought. And the book does some really interesting things with the black social gospel um, and, and the white social gospel and looking at them in, in relation. Um, but we haven't talked uh, quite as much as your book does yet about feminist liberation theology. So can you talk a little bit more about Rosemary Ruther and Mary Daly and who they were and how their thought was working in correspondence and also how it diverged. Well, Mary Daly and um, Rosemary Ruth were both Catholic women, American Catholic women, which is very interesting that feminist theology really began within the Catholic Church. Part of the reason is is because uh, the Protestant Protestant wing of, of Christianity tended to have a lot more, a little bit more freedom for women. So not completely, lots of problems there, but. Uh, not as much as you had within Catholicism. Uh, Mary Daly and Ruth are both scholars, uh, both theologians. They both started that way. Um, at the beginning, um, Mary Daly wrote a book called um, The Church and the Second Sex. She was greatly influenced by Simone de Beauvoir. She had gone to Vatican II and had been an observer and she was trying to call the church to account after Vatican II and say the church needs to change its views of women and we, it needs to change in terms of, of, of sexism. She believed at that point she was a reformer. She was trying to reform the church. By the time she wrote her second book, uh, Mary Daly wrote her book, Beyond God the Father. The title there tells you all you need to know. She had rejected not only the Catholic Church, she had reje- rejected all monotheistic religions, anything that had a male God, anything like that. So she she said that's really the problem. The problem is male God. And she had a lot of, a lot to say, like, you know, if God is male, then the male is God. She goes, no, nobody really believes that God is male, but everybody acts like he does. And everybody proceeds as though God is masculine and God is male and that the feminine had been completely uh, destroyed within the theology of the Catholic Church. So, I mean, you had, they had Mary, but Mary is extremely problematic for a lot of feminists. And so that's, that's kind of, she went on her own way. Mary Daly, after uh, Beyond God the Father, really went into a different string of, of, of spirituality, which is feminist spirituality, and that embraces lots of goddesses, just it's a pagan. Ruther, on the other hand, agreed with Mary Daly early on, it really agreed with her, but, Mary, but Ruther was not willing to leave uh, the Catholic Church. She wanted to stay and reform it from within. She had been involved. She had taught at Howard University in the religion department. She had been involved in civil rights. She had been involved in the feminist movement. Uh, very active theologian. And she also believed that theology had to change. And so she wrote extensively, like in the Christian century, and uh, she wrote in um, Nieberg's uh, magazine. She wrote everywhere. She was very prolific during her, in the 70s and 80s, and always on the same issue of theology must change. Um, So, but what happened too was, that was happening while they were doing that in the 1960s, as you know, early 1970s, in the 70s, women were flooding um, advanced education. They were going to college in bigger numbers. They were getting advanced degrees. They were getting, you know, into PhD programs. And that happened also in seminaries and divinity schools. Women were allowed in more freely. More women went to seminary. More women went to uh, theology schools because the doors had been opened. 
Now, when you have, you have to have a sort of a mass of number of the women who are theologically trained before you're going to have feminist theology. And that's exactly what happened. You had enough women who had studied theology in these schools that they were able to become critical thinkers and and basically critique the theology that they had been given. And so the 1970s was an explosion in feminist theology just because there was a sheer number of the massive women who were studying. Even though numbers were still minuscule and small, there were enough women who were studying theology and had been impacted by the feminist movement um, that they – it was this tension between the theology they were taught and uh, the feminist movement that they began to see the links. Yes, the reason women – are oppressed or are subordinated in our culture is because there's a theology behind it. There is a theology that keeps women in their place. And so we have to dismantle that in order to be free. So you, not all women who went to theology schools became feminist theologians. Some women just um, continued on uh, in the tradition. Some women were giving a a feminist, uh, a feminine, I would say a feminine gloss on scripture. Uh, But there was beginning to be a recovery of the lost women of the Bible, the women who had been ignored. They were in the, in the narrative that nobody ever preached about. Nobody ever talked about Uh, all there's so, there was so much coming uh, at the same time between the, what feminist in the, uh, in politics were accomplishing uh, the theology women were learning, what was going on in the churches. It was a revolution. It was truly a revolution. And there's just no way you can have that kind of a change in in a society in terms of women. Uh, and the revolutionary that, ha- that ha- was happening with women in terms of all the professions and their, their public uh, presence mm-hmm. without having a change in how they think about God. As you close the book, you describe uh, some commonalities between these parallel liberation theologies that you've addressed. Uh, you talk about the way that they challenge theological methods, the way that they redefine the relationship between religion and politics, and the way that they all share an expectation that religion will be a driving force in social change. Um, one of the, the comments that you make in that epilogue of the book, which I think is so interesting, is that you say you, you can't measure the historical achievement of movements by their stated goals. That that seems to be uh, a factor of your choice to study the, the sensibility and ideas. Can you talk a little bit more about stated goals versus what we mean by the historical achievement of something like liberation theology? Well, you know, we tend to say, uh, one of the things that happened when I was doing this work at the very beginning, people were saying, uh, and I was working on this, you know, in 2007 and eight. people were saying, Oh, liberation theology is dead. It's over. Uh, it, you know, it didn't do anything. You know, they were promising revolution, and we got nothing. And so, yeah, based on that, if you if you know, they were wanting they were wanting a social revolution uh, for Black people, for Latin America people, for women. Did it happen? No. Okay, so you could say on that measure they failed. But if you look at the measure of how they changed the conversation, anyway, every theologian since since the liberations has to address. Uh, liberation theology in some way. They have to address the political and the relationship between their theology mm-hmm. and the political. And even the most conservative of of theologians has to at least give them a line, <laughs> you know, of why or why not they're wrong, why they're right or why they're wrong. Yeah. So 
and also what they've done, they have a, I mean, if you, you know, the whole idea of social justice, everybody's talking about social justice. Well, you know, you could say, well, you know, deliberation theology is dead, but now everybody's talking about social justice. They've been talking about it for a while now. And, uh, that was a revitalization of the social justice language because in the 50s and in, in 50, right after the war, post-war America, uh, social justice sort of kind of went by the sideline side in the churches okay, or in, in theology. Same thing in the 60s. It was the liberationists who brought it back up, up and said, hey, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. What about justice? Social justice. It's a part of the Christian life. It's part of being a Christian. So uh, they, they kind of recovered that language for people. Now everybody's talking about liberation theology. You see it a lot. The thing about liberation theology is mo- most people don't know what it is. They think it means social justice on its own. And it's a part of it, but it's not the whole thing. And then the other thing, too, that happens is that vast majority, I'm just going to talk about women or even African-Americans that are the most conservative, who could be very conservative women, very conservative African-Americans, politically conservative, or maybe they're like really socially conservative or even theologically conservative. Mm-hmm. All of them, I think you can see, you can hear it in the language, have been influenced by this by this movement. They may not even know it, that that's where they got it, but they'll talk about social justice. They talk about something not, you know, not being right, about you know, we need more women in ministry. We need, you know, we need uh, African-American people to have, uh, you know, access to more uh, social goods uh, in in the black churches. So it's like, it's this sort of soup, you know, and in terms of changing the language, making people more conscious of social injustice for women, African-Americans and poor people, liberation theology it was very much part of that, even though people may not know it was liberation theology that did that. So with that in mind, who are you hoping will really read your book? And what do you hope that they'll they'll take away from it? Well, I'm hoping, you know, of course, my fellow scholars of religion and politics will read it. Uh, intellectual historians will read it. But besides that, I really would like to see activists, social justice workers, pastoral workers, uh, people who are addressing leadership, leaders who are addressing the the injustice in our society today, and to see themselves within a longer tradition, and to understand exactly what they're doing, because it's not just politics and it's not just religion; it's all both together, and uh, those things are occupying the same space. I don't know what that means for for liberal democracies and for liberal states. When you have uh, religion sort of, you know, going beyond its uh, boundaries and not no longer just in the churches, but out on the street, I think that has a big implication for how liberalism is going to proceed. Well, I think having read the book, I know that it offers a really strong history for those groups. Yes, for scholars and for folks like me who aren't in the academy now, but are thinking about our public life together and and the connection between religion and politics. I know that uh, readers from all those different groups who come to your book will be grateful for it. Uh, I certainly am. Lillian, thanks for, thanks for the time today to talk about it and explore how you put it together. Thank you so much. This has been uh, another episode of New Books in Intellectual History. This episode is a special collaboration with the U.S. Society for Intellectual History. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back again.